Welcome to Compliance Beat, the podcast for compliance and ethics professionals. We provide practical insights and answer your questions about compliance and ethics. Together, we'll stay up to date on current trends so that your program stays effective. Brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Here's your host, Eric Moorhead. Hey, Eric, president of Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Hey, Ronnie, founder of LE Creative Communications. Eric, what's wrong? My company's compliance training is dry and boring, and employees don't like it very much. Well, that sounds awful and ineffective. It is. I want to do something different, but we have a really conservative culture here. Perhaps you should attend the upcoming webinar where we'll discuss techniques for creatively communicating compliance and conservative cultures. Tuesday, June 6th at 12 noon Central Time. Oh, I'll be there. Me too. Join us. And you can sign up painlessly on your cell phone by texting the word communicating, C-O-M-M-U-N-I-C-A-T-I-N-G, to 44222. That's 44222. Hope to see you there. This time we're going to revisit Interactive Code of Conduct. This has been a popular episode in our archive. And also, we've had one or two recent questions about the new guidance from the Department of Justice and other things that have come out about whether it is a quote-unquote requirement or necessary or preferred or best practice to have interactivity in your code of conduct. And I think it's worth discussing again, and in particular taking a look at what the new guidance says and and what we're seeing uh, in the marketplace, what we're seeing many organizations do. But before that, I did want to say a special thank you to all of the listeners to this podcast from all of us for pushing us, by the time you listen to this, pushing us over 6,000 downloads for the episodes that we have. And I think there's something on the order of 40 episodes, I think that's right, since October of 2016. Certainly for a podcast about compliance and ethics, not necessarily the most thrilling of topics uh, for a podcast that, that are out there. We feel pretty gratified by that. And it is all down to you, the listener, and we certainly appreciate it. And if you haven't already subscribed to the Compliance Beat podcast, we'd sure love it if you would. If you can go on iTunes and provide a review or a ranking, we'd sure appreciate that as well. And as always, if you have any questions, and we did get a couple of questions, and that's what's prompted this discussion today. We always want to hear them, and we appreciate it if you email us if you have any ideas, questions, things that you would like us to discuss or address in future podcasts. We're happy to do it. One other uh, piece of business, uh, we have another live webinar that we're going to do in June. On June 6, 2017, at 12 noon Central Time, our next webinar is going to be Communicating Compliance how to engage your employees in compliance and ethics. And I'm going to be doing this webinar with Ronnie Feldman from Learnings and Entertainment. A link to his information will be in the show notes here. If you want to take a look, also obviously a link to the webinar. If you want to sign up painlessly, you can do so on your cell phone by texting the word communicating. That's C-O-M-M-U-N-I-C-A-T-I-N-G. Communicating to 44222. We won't uh, be sending you texts in the middle of the night or otherwise abusing uh, the information. We'll just simply sign you up as quickly and as easily as possible for this free webinar on communicating compliance. Again, if you just dial 44222 and text communicating. So on to interactive codes and what are the trends, tips, best practices, and what, if anything, does the new guidance about policies and procedures from the Department of Justice say about interactivity? 
first thing I would say is if you look at the new guidance, and this is on page four of the new evaluation of corporate compliance programs, which you can find online, and we'll have a link in the show notes as well, there's this concept of accessibility. And I'm just going to go ahead and read the whole thing to you because it's not very long. The inquiry is, how has the company communicated the policies and procedures relevant to the misconduct to the relevant employees and third parties? How has the company evaluated the usefulness of these policies and procedures? So the key here is, the inquiry is going to be into how the policies, in this case, the code of conduct, has been communicated to the stakeholders, and how that communication, how that process has been evaluated, and whether it's useful which is an interesting measure. So what's useful? I think that might be your initial inquiry when you're looking at your organization and your stakeholders that you're trying to reach. If you have a whole lot of folks that aren't going to be able to get online to see your whiz-bang interactive code of conduct, then it's probably not very useful. I think that that's sort of a threshold question that many people have already confronted. But I think you need to dive into that a little bit deeper because oftentimes when I talk to organizations, they're like, oh, well, we have a lot of people who aren't on the intranet. Well, does that necessarily mean that they don't have electronic communications? Perhaps like many people these days, they have a smartphone in their pocket that is, you know, immeasurably more complex and much more powerful than the Commodore 64 I had when I was a lad back in the 1980s. So it's a computer that's in everybody's pocket these days. My wife recently lost her smartphone and picked up a very inexpensive prepaid phone that runs on the Android system and does all of the things, again, that a computer of only 10, 15 years ago, a laptop or a desktop computer would have done. So I think that what I hear from clients and potential clients a lot of the times is, we like the idea of interactivity, but that just won't work for our population because they don't have access. I think that you have to think about it a little bit more carefully because perhaps you're not going to put something that's too sophisticated, but maybe you want to consider some portal or some interactivity if you know that your population, for example, has a smartphone in every one of their pockets. Maybe that's the way they're going to interact with the code potentially. For most organizations, that's not the case, though. For most organizations, I think there's the contemplation that the majority or most or significantly all or significant population of the stakeholders and of the employees are going to reach the code on your intranet. So then the inquiry is a little bit easier because you know that they're probably going to be accessing it from a laptop, perhaps a tablet or some other device. And there are technical details that you need to work through. And I'm not going to go into that too deeply right here. Depending on how you set up and establish that presence on the web, whether that's the intranet or internet, there are going to be complications about different users being able to access it. And I don't want to spend too much time on that right now, but these are all things that you need to think of right up front about what is going to be considered useful. Again, it's an interesting concept. What's useful? Well, something that's useful, I think, could be interactive and it could be obviously varying levels of interactivity. The most simple interactivity, which is sometimes overlooked but is helpful, is things like navigation tools within the document. And that's something you can do in an average Adobe PDF file. You know, Most codes of conduct, if they're housed on, an, on a website, whether it's an internal website or external website these days, are created in the PDF format. Well, within the PDF format, there are some things you can do. 
you're not going to be able to do certain things that you could do with a full-on web development, but you can do uh, navigation tools, you can do simple interactivity, click buttons, you can actually even embed video and do some other things like that as well. So don't rule anything out at the beginning. I think that what you need to do is consider who the population is and have a story. We talked about this before now for the last few weeks as we've been contemplating the new guidance. But I think this was true even before then. If you ever were in a situation or were contemplating a situation where you had to talk to a regulator, either you knew that's part, if you're in a highly regulated space and you are going to be audited at some point and you knew that you were going to need to talk to a regulator, or you were contemplating the worst case scenario where you might need to talk to a regulator. It's all about having a reasonable story about the decisions you made when you were putting together the code of conduct. So that's uh, looking at the guidance. But what are best practices? What are other organizations doing? Well, if you benchmark codes of conduct, depending on your industry, you might see different risk topics that are covered. You'll see varying lengths, varying approaches. But for the most part, I would say interactivity is slowly making its way into revisions of codes of conduct. I think that what I find when I work with clients and when I talk to people out there is that there is an unwillingness if you're going from, say, a code, you know, what's often called code 1.0, which is a legal document written by the lawyers when your company was going to go public 25 years ago, or similar legalistic typewritten word document that was your code of conduct for many organizations 10, 15 years ago. And still some organizations have that sort of code of conduct, but for the most part, codes have been changing. And so I think where interactivity comes into discussion is with organizations that are refreshing a code that already exhibits many of the factors that you wouldn't have seen in that sort of code. So graphics, photo layout, you know, the analogy I often make is it's the difference between a legal document, a policy, a kind of traditional legal policy, and your organization's annual report, which is usually splashy laid out you know, there are graphic designers involved. So if there's a graphic designer involved, then that's what we're really talking about. And I think for many of you, you've got that. You've got a code that has photos. You've got a code that has graphic elements. You've got a code where you've massaged, to a certain extent, the text of the document. But now you're in a situation where that code is maybe four or five or six years old, and you're considering an update. Now, I think that those are the organizations that are in a prime position to consider some interactivity. And again, you don't necessarily have to go out and break the budget you know, and hire web designers to do soup to nuts, uh, complete overhaul of your code of conduct. Some organizations decide to do that, but you can do it within the confines of an Adobe PDF document, you know, taking baby steps. I think that's worthwhile. Again, all couch through this notion of who is the audience? What are we trying to do? What are our goals? So I started off by saying, what are the benchmarks? What, what are best practices? What are organizations doing? It really varies depending on what your maturity level is on your code of conduct. If you've got that legal document, that typewritten document, so to speak, that's in probably maybe even in courier font, that document is probably not going to transform from that state into a completely interactive document. It may, depending on what your goals and your your objectives are, but that document is just going to come a little bit closer into what the expectations are. I think the organizations that are moving towards some interactivity are in that second group and the group that have already made the leap from the legal document to the slightly more designed document. And so it's still a static document. It's still something that doesn't have any clickable pieces on it, maybe some hyperlinks to your other policies, some cross-references. But other than that, no interactivity. And I think where I see organizations dipping their toe in is on some slight interactivity on those documents, You know, some navigational tools, 
some clickable decision trees, some clickable uh, learning aids or comprehension aids within the document itself. And those are all things that can be baby steps and don't necessarily have to fundamentally change the document, fundamentally change the fact that you can print the document out and hand it out to people or people can print it out themselves if that's how what they're used to doing it. That's the way they're used to interacting with the document rather. You know, none of that is foreclosed. So I think that, I know that's kind of broad and and not too specific, but I think it's not possible to say that all organizations are moving towards interactivity because that's clearly not the case. And if you have questions about it and questions about what your peers are doing, the great thing about code of conduct is if your peer organizations or those peer organizations of your organization that are publicly traded companies, they have to have their code of conduct, or if they don't, they are violating the provisions of the exchange uh, somewhere on their website. You can usually find a code of conduct either under a separate compliance tab or under the investor section for a publicly traded company. So you can go out and you can take a look and you can, you know, name the five companies that you think are significant peer organizations to your organization. Go take a look at what they have and that'll give you a good idea. It's not a complete benchmarking, but it's a start of sort of what the expectations are. What would a regulator, what would a stakeholder expect of your code of conduct based on organizations that are seen as peers? I think that's a good way because it's all over the map. It's definitely not true that all organizations are doing interactivity in their code of conduct. And I don't think that this usefulness test, the accessibility discussion that the department has delivered to us here in the last couple of months really changes that because you know you're still making that inquiry and usefulness is pretty broad. You know, I think that it's very possible that an organization could say when I Take a look at how we're distributing our code of conduct, what our code looks like, and the fact that it's not interactive. To me, that's more useful to the population that we're trying to serve. I think you just have to, again, tell your story, be able to justify it, be able to justify the decisions that you've made. And then I think that that's where you want to be. If you can't do that, if you are uncomfortable, if you're looking at your, again, your code of conduct that's in courier font and hasn't been updated in 10 years, that's not maybe the story that you want to tell. So I think the fact of the matter is, I don't think anything has fundamentally changed as far as interactivity goes. I think it is a tool, but like all tools, you have to figure out how you're going to use it and have a plan for how you're going to use it in your organization. So I hope that's helpful. It at least maybe gets you thinking about how you might approach maybe the redevelopment of your code of conduct, whether you use interactivity or not. So thanks again for joining us. And once again, I want to remind you, if you have interest in communication and particularly communicating compliance to your employees, please text the word communicating to 44222 and sign up for our free webinar which is going to be on June 6, 2017 at noon central time. Thanks. The upshot this time is, despite some of the new guidance that we received from our friends at the department about the usefulness of policies and procedures and accessibility, interactivity is still a question that will vary from organization to organization when considering your code of conduct. Welcome to the second part of a two-part interview with Allison Taylor from BSR. Allison Taylor is a director for Business and Social Responsibility, a global nonprofit which works with companies to develop sustainable business strategies. And you can find them at bsr.org. She leads BSR's sustainable management practice and focuses on approaches to sustainability through risk management, strategy, stakeholder engagement, transparency, ethics and governance, and organizational change. She also recently authored The Five Levels of an Ethical Culture, a report which can be found at BSR's website and is a very engaging read that I encourage you all to check out. Welcome, Allison. 
Hi, Eric. Thanks very much for having me. The uh, third area that uh, you spend some time in the report uh, dissecting is the relationship between managers and the team, the group, you know, and how creating a group dynamic can allow employees to feel secure in taking risks and perhaps uh, expressing themselves, including reporting and asking questions, and allow teams to be uh, more successful overall while maintaining ethics. In your research and, and review, what tools can middle managers use to create that sort of environment where their team feels comfortable, uh, not only uh, taking risks in a business sense, but also coming forward and asking questions and, and being comfortable about expressing concerns? Sure. So in this section of the report, I take a lot of research that looks at team effectiveness and performance and then try to tie it directly to ethics. So Mm -hmm. I do this in two areas. One is the importance of diversity and inclusion initiatives. So people, employees feeling that they can be themselves at work, that they don't need to hide some aspect of their identities to fit in with the team. And the other area and I use a study from Google which shows that psychological safety in the team is is very important in driving performance and creativity and so on. There's also, as I'm sure you'll know, a lot of research on how diverse teams perform in a much more strong way. They're much more able to challenge themselves, each other, and bring in perspectives that kind of undermine the possibility of groupthink. So what I do here is, is take those concepts and tie them directly to ethical performance. If you are able to be yourself at work, you are you feel in alignment with your personal values and the team's values, you're more likely to express yourself, you're more likely to raise concerns, and you're more likely to feel psychologically safe. Uh-huh. Um, anxiety and conflict and time pressure and a sense of necessity and urgency are all tied to unethical team behavior. So to turn to your question, uh, team leaders, I think, can do a lot here to create the sense of psychological safety, to reduce anxiety, to make sure people are comfortable sharing concerns and ideas and risks. And this is extremely important, I think, in today's organizations, which are becoming more networked and diffuse and loosely coupled. So the importance of tone in the middle and those group relationships is increasing over time because the senior leadership team often is not the only leadership team that's that's setting culture and it's not the only place that employees are looking. Mm. Where this can create problems is if, if, if you have a middle manager who is able to create the sense of psychological safety in this very effective team, but is operating in an organization where the incentives and culture may be different. And in that in that case, that middle manager may find there's a conflict between what they need to do to drive their team performance and then what they are expected to do as a representative of that team in the wider organization. And there we get back to things like incentives. So um, mm-hmm. I think, you know, we mustn't forget the burden on middle management. You are, you are expected to manage up and manage down and to negotiate and navigate those relationships is, is incredibly stressful. Yes. And, and that kind of leads into the fourth area that you focus on in the, uh, in the paper, which is uh, intergroup relationships, uh, the dy- dynamics between different teams. And what you found is that while collaboration between teams ideally should be uh, 
collaborative <laughs> should should be working towards the same goal. But there are challenges there, both the management challenges you alluded to just a minute ago, but also logistical challenges such as distance and you know organization of the of the overall enterprise status of varying teams. Can you talk? Just a little bit about those challenges, about how, how both managers and teams could work together and what are some strategies there and how they might you know, overcome those issues to try to build a, a stronger culture and, and work together better. Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's it's very significant always to look at the way that different teams and groups in an organization, their relative status and their relative rewards. There are a lot of studies, for example, in the banking sector that showed that the interests of the sales team and the head of sales before the banking crisis, you know, those teams and those interests <laughs> dominated over the frisk function, the yep. compliance function, and, and frequently even the CEO. So the Power and status and resources of different teams is a really, really significant issue. I'll answer your question with with specific respect to the compliance team. So there is a a big discussion and a big movement at the moment characterized by the the Compliance 2.0 debate about looking at the reporting lines of the compliance function, Mm -hmm. looking at the relationship between the compliance office and the general counsel, looking at the access that the compliance function has to the senior leadership team. And that's a really, really important and significant debate for all the reasons that I mentioned. But I think there are other more kind of complex cultural factors at play here. If you are in a compliance function, you're in this really interesting area where you're kind of trying to navigate across the organization. You need to have a function that has oversight capacity and is in some respects expected to police the organization, you also need to build an understanding and trust and ability to know what's going on within specific Uh teams and functions and maybe remote offices. And I think many organizations sort of struggle with this in a very concrete way. Should I put the compliance office in head office where they have access to the senior leadership team and they're responsible for overall culture and process? Or do I put them on the front line where the problems may actually arise? But there's a lot of research suggesting that sometimes if you put the compliance officer on the front line and they are isolated, they can become infected and socialized into those local conditions. So this is something where I don't think there's a right or wrong answer and you need to look at the structure of your business. And it's it's really a sense of a, a pendulum that may swing too far one way or the other. And that balance of, of trust and knowledge and oversight is really, I think, what makes the compliance role so amazingly challenging. And, and I think it's becoming more interesting as a career every year, really. Well, you bring up a really interesting point from my perspective as far as when you talk about embedding compliance, which is something that organizations are thinking very seriously about in the last few years to try to uh, get compliance on the front lines, as you said. What I saw going back uh, 15 plus years in Houston when we had the Enron crisis and then subsequent to Enron, there were several over-the-counter commodities trading organizations in Houston, energy trading companies that had many minor issues, minor to to medium to major issues that involved uh, trading activity within their their organizations. And many of them, as was the case, I think, uh, and still is with, with trading operations throughout the world, had compliance people that sat 
you know, sat in the same area that, that basically worked with the team. And you had that mission creep, if you will, where the embedded compliance officer, you know, really saw themselves more as a team member of that trading group than necessarily a, an independent, independent arbiter uh, for, for compliance or for the back office. And I guess what I worry about is, like you said, trying to strike that balance as organizations embed or push uh, compliance personnel into operations to make sure that they retain some independence. It seems like a tough balancing act. And and that's what you saw in your research as well? Yeah, I think it's an incredibly tough balancing act and something else that maybe isn't always acknowledged in terms of the contradictions it can create. And um, human beings are very easily socialized by their surroundings. And, and, and this yeah. is the sort of, you know, we love, we love to believe that we are independent individuals. But, you know, the, the very obvious thing is if you, if you start a job, you are far more likely to look at the behavior of your colleagues around you to mm-hmm. figure out what the norms are and what to do than you are to, to read the code of conduct and literally follow that. So we're, we're all slightly uncomfortable with how influenced we are by our surroundings, but compliance officers aren't immune to this either. No. And so, you know, I think strategies to create that independence, to slow down decision-making, to ensure that ensure that oversight is working the way it should do are certainly needed. But again, it's not this one-size-fits-all simple answer where we just do this and it will all work. And um, we have to, as, as, as this function evolves, I think be very realistic about the pressures that this can put compliance officers under and, and what exactly we are expecting from them. Yeah. I think very yeah. often they are they are made responsible for the ethical culture of the team without necess- with the, of the whole organization without necessarily the tools or accountability to to drive that ethical culture. I think the one thing that might be the saving grace for an organization as they do this though is if they're doing that in tandem with what we were talking about earlier about engaging the uh, local management to not only be responsible for the letter of the code or the letter of the law, but also for the culture, if you have an embedded compliance person that isn't expected to do it, shoulder the burden of the culture all by themselves, then perhaps they might be more successful than some of the the situations I've seen where it's been a failure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The last area, the fifth area that you examine in your in your recent paper, is the outward looking piece. Uh, It's the inter organizational and looking at how how organizations interact in a cultural in a cultural way externally. You said, you know, employees pay attention to how their organizations treat those outside of the organization, you know, including suppliers, customers, competitors. So it's not just a matter of, you know, how the different you were talking earlier about the differential between top performers or managers or, or certain certain groups versus other groups internally. But there's also, and this is something that was kind of an aha moment for me when I was reading your paper. I guess intellectually I understood that this was the point, but I hadn't really thought about it before, that how a company treats third parties can really affect the culture as well. Can you talk a little bit about that and how this might mean some work by many organizations to kind of shift how they, how they handle these relationships? 
Yeah, it's one of those kind of blindingly obvious things, I think, that is surprisingly little discussed is that your relationship, you know, your relationships with the external world will reflect your culture in a very significant way and will be picked up by employees. And I think if we think about what corruption is, it reflects a certain relationship with your stakeholders where you maybe do not feel that you have to put R&D into designing a better product or, you know, compete in a fair way because you are making a payment to get advantage that means that you, you know, that you don't need to build relationships and trust with stakeholders in the same way. So Uh I think uh, there's a lot of discussion now about how corrupt practices might correlate, therefore, with abuses of labor standards or um, of human rights or environmental regulation or that kind of thing. So I think we need to, you know, think very carefully about that. And then I think, you know, where this is showing up very specifically is in terms of the supply chain. And we have seen whether it is um, with conflict minerals or the pressure in in terms of what happened after the Rana Plaza disaster in Bangladesh. Uh, Now there is a lot of attention about trafficking and construction in the Middle least. So companies are increasingly being held responsible for, for how they treat their suppliers and what exactly behavior that they're driving there. And I think, you know, ultimately we're seeing this situation where the, the boundary between an organization and ex- its external relationships is breaking down uh-huh. and companies are increasingly being, being held responsible for this whole value chain. And I think with technology, a traceable supply chain is probably within reach between developments in transparency and blockchain and so on. So it's probably not too long before it will be achievable for companies to understand the whole breadth of their supply chain and take action accordingly. And I think the public is expecting that. And I think it will be a key driver of a healthy culture in future. I totally agree. And when I was reading your paper, I was actually in the midst of traveling And at the same time, the extraordinary events that happened with United Airlines were going on. And I couldn't help but think that, particularly in some of the messaging that that came right on the heels of that, where Oscar Munoz had these very different messages. Well, you know, his initial messages to the outside, to the public, were not that great. But he had this internal message, which was sort of an us versus them message that went out, I think, the day day after or two days after the event. And it really uh, struck a chord with me in coordination with what I had just read your research about this external, the external relationships and how that affects culture. Because I think that only reinforces <laughs> the negative behaviors and the lack of responsibility, t- taking responsibility at all levels within that organization that went on for a week until finally they got battered enough <laughs> in, the, right. in the marketplace that they, ha- that, that they had to change their messaging. And it also reminded me of a very interesting phenomenon that anybody f- who travels travels a fair amount and is from Houston or any other continental hub will recognize is that for a few years after United acquired Continental, if you ever had a customer service issue and you would go talk to somebody at the at desk at the airport or on the phone, it was not extraordinary for that person to say, well, I'm actually a continent, I'm a former Continental employee to kind of distinguish themselves. Right. distinguish themselves from the United Airlines culture. And it's just, it's really interesting how you're right. These barriers have broken down and your internal and your external culture can't really be separate anymore. And I think United had a really public lesson about that just a few weeks ago. 
Yeah, I think there's been a lot. I'm not sure that everybody has quite realized, for, uh, given all the examples <laughs> you've seen, but I think given yeah. what's happened in terms of, of what I call hypertransparency, one, the, the reputational consequences of these kinds of things are much more extreme than they used to be. Yes. But also the kind of the ability of these small incidents to escalate into, into giant reputational crises is there. And then the ability of companies to manage their reputations. There's, a, there's another huge trend of giant data leaks and hacks in terms of companies, you know, practices being revealed. So I think there's a strong argument that companies at least should be thinking about having to behave as if everything they say or do may become public in future. And then there's a lot of research out of NYU and Wharton showing that, and this I think can often, so this can often seem unpredictable to companies that, that these reputational crises sort of come out of nowhere. But I think all frequent flyers in the US, you know, know enough about domestic travel to have sort of piled on when this incident occurred. And if maybe there had been more trust, things had not escalated that way. So there's a sense in which your your existing stakeholder trust will be a driver of the reputational issues that you suffer. And I'll give you another very specific example to tie back to the beginning of the conversation, which is that there's been a lot of pressure on the companies and banks funding the Dakota Access Pipeline recently. Yes. And the bank that has had the most criticism is Wells Fargo, not because they are the biggest financer of the pipeline, but because that association came to light when people were already annoyed about the fake account scandal. So then the reputational concerns become double or triple. Uh-huh. There's a very interesting paper called Not All Sparks Light a Fire, which basically makes the argument that the degree of stakeholder trust that you walk into an incident with is a very good predictor of, of whether that incident will, will escalate into a giant reputational crisis or not. So I can't think of a better argument for thinking and measuring and having as one of your goals the need to build stakeholder trust. So not just your shareholders, but your employees, your customers, NGOs, and the general public, and maybe even collaboration with your competitors in order to solve some of these more systemic challenges. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, another good comparison just that happened contemporaneously with what was going on with United was, and I actually was caught up in this because I was flying Delta, and I was one of the many thousands of people who was trapped in Atlanta for, I was lucky, I got out uh, only about 20 hours later than than what I had planned. But some people were stuck for a couple of days. They ended up canceling, I think, something on the order of 4,000 flights. Well, as a service disruption, as a business issue, that should have been orders of magnitude greater than, you know, one person, you know, on one flight uh, exactly. uh, for, for United and, and, the, and the differential in reputation and uh, value loss and in and, and customer perception is extraordinary. I mean, I, I don't think Delta came out of that unscathed. And there was a lot of grumbling and complaining about the communication and the lack of being able to get a hold of agents during the while the crisis was under unfolding. But I think overall, Delta, you know, they've had two major outages where they've had to cancel three thousand plus flights in the last eighteen months, and they are looking a lot, <laughs> looking a lot better than the other two major American airlines who have, are basically, uh, you know, starting fights with their. 
with their flyers. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And it, you know, and it's this sort of, I mean, and it speaks to, it speaks to what I was sort of saying about people becoming socialized into a system and how hard it can be to step out of it. And I think it's, Mm. you know, it's very easy to to demonize the CEO of United, but his first, his first response was to sort of say, well, all, you know, all processes were followed and, you know, we apologize for the inconvenience, but, you know, in terms of our organizational process, you know, we did what we were supposed to do, which was sort of tone deaf, but I don't think it's surprising given the way that airlines manage themselves and risk and their costs and their benefits and so on, that there can be this this sort of, you, you kind of get get buried and you can't just step back and see the obvious sometimes unless it's pointed out to you. So uh, we can overcomplicate this. We can look at targets. We can look at processes. We can say, well, we all did what we were supposed to do and it wasn't our fault. But sometimes you need to just sort of step back and, and take a slightly more values-driven and simple perspective about what the public expects and wants to see. <laughs> That's the best you can do. Well, Allison, I, I can't thank you enough for spending a few minutes with us today and talking about these these really prescient issues for, for everyone who is responsible for culture, which, as we discussed, is everyone. <laughs> so thank exactly. you so much. Yeah, thank you, Eric, and thanks very much for taking the time. Thanks for listening to Compliance Beat. Check out our website, compliancebeat.com. This podcast is brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Be sure to check us out at moorheadconsulting.com.